Welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast, brought to you by TournamentPokerEdge.com, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to poker tournament strategy. Now here's your host, Clayton Fletcher. Hello once again, everybody, and welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Fletcher in New York City. Very, very happy to be bringing us a first-time guest, at least on this podcast, although He's been on, I think, twice on Andrew Brokus's incredible Thinking Poker podcast, which I hope all of you are also listening to as well as this one. Uh, but please help me welcome for the first time on the TPE podcast, Danny Sprung. How are you, Danny? Great. Thanks for having me. I've been a huge fan of your podcast ever since you took it over, and it's going to be fun to be chatting with you and myself this time. Well, we're off to a good start. Uh, flattery will get you everywhere. So. <laughs> I appreciate it. Now, where are you located? I live in Las Vegas. We moved out here in 2012, so the poker capital of the world is is where I call home as well. Wonderful. And are you playing full-time these days, or where, where are you at in the poker uh, hierarchy? I'm, I'm, a, I'm what you would call a serious amateur, and uh, unfortunately due to COVID, uh, I've really cut, cut back on my poker playing. I haven't really ventured out except for a few times during the World Series. And since I'm not really a big fan of online, my poker my poker involvement the last two years has been more of a theoretical studying kind of point of view than actually playing. Yeah. Now, uh, one reason I wanted to have you on, Danny, is because very often after I will uh, review a hand that I played on the podcast, uh, I will hear from you. Like, by the way, I ran one of your hands that you discussed on the podcast through a solver and here's what the solver thinks of your decisions. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm really interested in um, how much of that you do with your own stuff. Do you study other people's hands a lot? Like, what made you get into solvering? Just kind of give us a little bit of color on your uh, relationship to solvers as you study poker. Well, I, I'm sort of what you would call a math geek. I love all things numbers and theoretical and, and, and probability, statistics, all that sort of stuff. So what you mentioned, I, I will always come home and, and analyze several of the hands that I've played during a tournament. I have several friends who will send me hands as well. And, you know, they say the best way to use a solver is not to just look at a hand and pat yourself on the back or decide if you didn't play it well. You know, you want to look at more and more of the theory point of view from for a solver. So some of the stuff I've also worked on is just looking at how often one should be betting like in a single raise pot out of position on a generic flop or an average flop. And, and Pio helps you do those sorts of things as well. So that is your solver of choice, Pio solver? Yeah, it's the only one I have for now. Uh, I'm not, you know, I've, I've heard some good things about other ones, but it it keeps me occupied enough that I don't really feel the need for another one. And have we confirmed that it's Pio and not Pio? Well, I think I think the name Pio derives from the guy's name, and it's like P-I-O-T-R, so it's P-Tor, so I'm not sure <laughs> which one it is. <laughs> I go with Pio just because I think that's what more people do than not, but Pio yeah. sounds, doesn't sound as, sound as uh, good to the ear anyway, so... Well, as Americans, we always love to 
bastardize other people's pronunciation. So I'm sure the Piotr would be really happy that we call him Piotr or something. <laughs> anyway, I never knew where the name came from. I thought it had something to do with like a mathematical, like the number pi or something like that. No, I think it's just somebody's name and they just shortened it and that's that's where they went. There you go. I think. That's, that's what I understand. <laughs> it's his fault. So what do you want to do? So you say that you are a serious amateur. Um, now, so what kind of stakes do you normally play when it's not, uh, you know, everything shutting down for COVID and stuff? So I'll normally play, uh, I'm mostly play tournaments. Occasionally I'll play some, some cash two five cash or whatever, but mostly I'll play anywhere from a hundred dollar buy-in daily at the Orleans to the, you know, the, when the Venetian has a series, I'll play for the 400 to the 1500s. And then. You know, other than the main event, that's about as high as I go. I've played the main event three times, but mostly I'm in the, you know, I would say at a series, it's more like a $600 average. At, you know, just when nothing much is going on, I'll play a 100 or 200 if that's available. So. Got it. So now when you are not playing poker, uh, how do you spend your time? So my wife and I are both very serious tournament bridge players. Uh, we've traveled the world playing bridge. Uh, she's actually a world champion. And we've done as well in, in national events playing together and in a few world events playing together as well. So that actually, during COVID, we were playing uh, online bridge a lot, which really, you know, it helped our game and it helped pass the time as well. So that was great for us. Interesting. So I, you know, I don't hear much about the bridge world. How big of a world is that? How impressed should we be that your wife is a world champion? Like, tell us more about bridge. Well, I'm very impressed that my wife is a world champion. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, you know, when when we have our serious tournaments like here in Las Vegas, you'll get maybe four or five thousand people. It'll look something like what a World Series event, you know, festival will look like, where we have different events every day, and there are more serious events for the very highest level players, and then the secondary national events, and then on down, all the way on down to people who've never played before. So it's a it's. Unfortunately, it's a it's a, somewhat of a dying game. It's a very uh, aging population. The average age of a tournament player is something about approaching seventy, which is doesn't bode well for the future for the game. But it's something that we really like to do. And we've been doing for our whole lives together, so it's a great game. And you know, there's a lot of crossover. There's some people who have been really successful bridge players who've also stuck their toes in the tournament poker world and done very well too. So. There's some crossover there. Really? Like who? Who are some of the bridge players that we might know that are in poker now? So there's a, a high-stakes player online named Thor Layden, Steve Weinstein. Sure, I know Steve Weinstein, yep. He's also uh, a world champion bridge player, so he's he's a really great player. Um, that's probably the only one you would know. There's, you know, um, I've... I've run into several of the really good bridge players playing poker tournaments, but none of them would be names that you would know as well. Got it. Well, that's cool. So you're playing bridge, you're playing poker, you're living in Vegas. Uh, very cool. And so no kids? No kids. No re and I retired from a, a stock options trading career in 2017. So I'm sort of on, we're sort of on our own doing our stuff, traveling and enjoying life mostly. Well, that's great. Wow, it sounds like the uh, American dream come true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If we can only just get rid of the, the, the COVID part of the American dream, we'll be in much better shape. Yeah, I mean, I will definitely drink to that for sure. 
Um, yeah, so any, uh, and before we get to your hand, uh, is there any anything else that you want people to know uh, about about Danny Sprung? Like what, what kind of name is Sprung anyway? It's a German name. It, it's uh, derived from the name, uh, the German word for jump. Uh, my grandfather's grandfather came to the United States in, sometime in the 19th century, so we don't really have much German roots anymore, but that's where it comes from. And, you know, what else to know about me? Uh, other than the bridge and the poker, and I had a 30-year stock options career, I met some famous poker players doing that as well. Uh, the most famous one was somebody who sort of got started in our little little exchange home game, as I would call it, named Matt Glantz. Sure, we all know Matt Glantz. Yeah, Matt, Matt was a friend of mine, and uh, the first year he decided to go pro, he sold shares of himself to you know a bunch of people on the exchange, and we all made a bunch of money on it. And uh, We were all excited to do it for the next year, and he's like, yeah, I think I can just do this on my own next year, and that was the end of that. Oh, but, so he fired his backers. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> I think the return was something like either three or four hundred percent in that one year, so it was pretty good. Yeah, you weren't complaining. So Matt's from Philadelphia. Is that where you grew up? No, I actually grew up in New York, but I spent my trading career in Philadelphia on the Philadelphia Stock Options Exchange. Got it. Got it. Yeah, that's where the stock options are. Cool. Yeah, and there, there's a bunch of uh, – there's a, a very famous firm called Susquehanna who uses poker to train their, their traders who got their start in, in Philly as well. So I knew a bunch of – the early people there, like a guy named Jeff Yaz, who's who's their uh, head honcho there. He was he and most of his friends were poker players before they got into the trading business. Well, wait, I know we want to do the hand, but this is interesting to me. Um, what kind of similarities are there? I know that uh, options trading involves a lot of simulations and chart studying charts and things like that. Um, is it, does stock options trading have a solver similar to Pio? Yeah, it, do, it, it does. Uh, it's got a model just like Pio does. The difference between uh, stock options and and poker, poker is sort of like what we would call a closed environment where there's 52 cards and only so many certain things can happen with those cards. Whereas the, as we can see with the stock market, the way it's been volatile lately, you can't always predict how volatile it will be and stuff like um, GameStop and AMC <laughs> and those other things where they were so far off the charts that they blew, they blew up the model, basically. So the, the similarity is that everything is about expected value, just like it is in poker. You know, it's the expected value of an option, expected value of a trade or of a, or of a position as a whole. And so there's a lot of similarity there, but the problem is that you have some people who don't remember that the stock market is not a closed system like the like the poker world is. So when these what or what will never basically never happen in poker can happen in 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 the finance world. And if you're not prepared for that, you're going to end up going out of business. So that's that's the big difference. But there's a lot of similarities too. Yeah. So what what is how can you define that term that you're using a closed a closed system? So a closed system means, you know, you have a deck of cards, you know what all the possibilities are, right? So you know that if somebody has uh, three to a flush on the flop, they have a 4% chance more or less of 
getting that flush. And we know that that's what will happen in the long run. In a stock option world or an option world or any finance world, you may think something has a 4% chance of happening, and it probably will happen 4% of the time, but something that might have a, you might think has a 1% chance of happening might happen a lot more often than that. Right, because Wall Street bets on Reddit <laughs> can change the whole thing and flip it over. Yeah, you know, and you have these situations where you know things like manipulating stocks and takeovers and all kinds of other situations, which just can't happen in a, in a closed system where you know what your your parameters are. Got it. Wow, that's very interesting. I could see where the appeal of being a a card player an options trader and a math geek would all kind of go together because you're trying to solve something that is, you know, very complicated, but yeah, like trying to use models and solvers. I could see where that's the part of the game that, that you latch onto and that appeals to you. And you told me you like to study a lot of other people's hands. So yeah. Yeah. So, you know, in theory, that's not the best way to use Pi. I think I mentioned that earlier, but it's more the way I can learn is to like look at an actual hand and see what what it is that Pi does. Now I'll look at other hands with what you should do with the range and things like that, which is what you should do. But having a actual hand to base my study off of is a lot easier than just saying, "All right, I'm going to study three bed pots out of position today." That doesn't that doesn't appeal to me as much. So I don't learn as well that way. I see. And so what do you learn from studying my hands? <laughs> <laughs> well, with with every hand, you know, you're going to see you're going to see Pio does some weird things. They have uh they they'll have check raises or they'll have have um bluffs that you wouldn't necessarily expect. They'll decide that, you know, certain blockers make a hand a better call even though a higher ranking hand is a worse call. That sort of thing. And you know, just, just seeing that, that that pattern recognition over and over again is what is the way I learned, and I think that's the way a lot of people learn as well. Really cool. Well, obviously you're a, an interesting guy, um, someone I've never actually met in person, but you know one of the best things about doing this podcast is getting to know some of our listeners. And uh, yeah, I definitely I had the idea to uh, have you on as a guest just from some of the conversations that we've had. Uh, where you would tweet out a hand and, and the you know the solver results, even though I don't actually play the game in theory, you know I play it in practice. So sometimes, right? Like so theoretically, I'm supposed to check raise all in here 0.03% of the time, right? But right. in practice, I'm not actually going to ever do so, right? Yeah, and you're going to be looking to for places where you're going to exploit your opponent and do something that you know the solver wouldn't do. Yeah, because that's that's how we play in real life. But still, you know, sometimes I get a question. I think it's a very interesting question. People will say, you know, are you a GTO guy or are you a play-by-feel guy? And the answer is neither. Like, you know, theory GTO is the theory of poker, and we need to learn it. We need to understand what we can learn from the solver. And I agree with you. It's not just... You know how to play this hand versus that hand. It's really about what the output of the solver is really telling us, right? Not just about how we played one particular hand in one particular tournament, one particular spot, but really like what is the overall output highlighting for us? Like what are my mistakes? What am I? 
what what can I learn from this? What do I not do enough? And maybe what do I do too much, right? I mean, is that what I'm supposed to be getting from it? Yeah, sure. And, and you know, it's funny. You, you said you would. You were, the answer to your question is GTO or exploitative, and you said neither. And I would say the answer should be both. Right, right. You should be in the GTO stuff and using that as a baseline, and then going off of that and saying, oh, this person bluffs too much. Therefore, I can call with more of my marginal hands, or they don't bluff at all. I can just throw anything that I, I'm not beating their value. Yeah, so, I mean, a jazz musician can't take an improvised solo without first learning how to play a scale. Right. So yeah, to yeah. me, like all that solver work and study that we do is kind of like fundamentals, learning the scales. Yeah, sure. That's a, that's a good way of looking at it. And then sometimes you just say, well, I know what the computer would say, but I'm going to do this anyway because <laughs> A, B, and C reasons. Yes, and that, that might have some relevance to the hand that, that I brought to you today. Well, I love a good segue, so let's hear it. Where does this hand come from? <laughs> uh, so I, I, after the vaccine mandate for the World Series, I decided that I would be comfortable playing a few events there, and I dipped my toe in the water. And I, I, I was a little rusty, so I didn't take really good notes on it, so I'm sort of going off of what I wrote down at the table. But, you know, when I'm more in tune to the hands, I can take better notes, but... So the hand in question comes from the 888 event. Um, we're about four or five hours in, and we're, do we're doing well. We have about two times the starting stack. Okay, so guys, this is an $888 buy-in with a guaranteed first place prize of 888888 for first place. So, uh, And how many starting days? Do you remember how many they did this time? Well, they were supposed to do four, but I think because of COVID problems, they cut one one out, and they only did three. Okay, they ended up doing three, but they still crushed that guarantee, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the guarantee is only for first place, so they were they were joking when they didn't have the first day that first place would be eight hundred eighty-eight thousand, and second place would be a bag of donuts. Right? <laughs> yeah, twenty bucks. <laughs> that sounds like my kind of tournament. You you know you guys know I love the idea of winner take all poker tournaments. So now I would have played that for sure. <laughs> yeah, they still did well enough that they you know the the prizes were were sufficient for just making the final table and stuff. But okay, cool. So um, yeah, we're about we're about a third of the way through the first day, and like I said, we we both myself and the villain in the hand have about eighty big blinds. Uh, which is about two times the starting stack. Uh, one other thing about the 888 that Clayton didn't mention is that it's eight-handed, which is very nice. So a little more leg room and a few more hands to play. That's good. Right. You're never you're never really under the gun. You're only under the gun plus one. Right. And uh, so the hand I had, I was in the low jack. I had the king of spades, queen of clubs, and I opened it to 2.3x like I normally do. Nothing too controversial there, I don't think. No. And the big blind calls, and my notes on her were, she's a thinking Asian woman and slightly on the tighter side. Okay. So nothing nothing too exciting with that. So the flop comes jack of spades, nine of spades, seven of clubs. Okay, so we've got two over cards and a gut shot. And the backdoor flush draw. Right, okay, so we also we have, have a backdoor flush draw. With right. the jack nine of spades out there. Right, okay, so yeah, it's pretty... Considering we didn't make a pair, this is uh, an above-average flop. Yeah, it's a good flop for us, but it's also, notably, it's a good good flop for a somewhat tight player in the big blind. They're going to have a lot of ways where they made a pair, they made a gut shot, they made a flush draw, 
they already had a pair. They're going to have a lot of hands that are strong. Yeah. Now, what percentage of your uh, of her hands do you think she's defending for a call from out of the big blind when you open to 2.3x? Probably in the 40 to 50 percent range, maybe a little less than she should. Um, you know, this is only off of a, a few hour sample size. It's not like I could really narrow her down that well, but. She was not a wild player, but she was not not you know super tight either. So the flop again is Jack nine seven. Yes. Do you think she can have the nuts here? Like, would she have defended with ten eight? Oh, I'm sure she would have defended with ten eight suited. Whether she would have ten eight off suit, I would say that's probably right at the bottom of her calling range. I doubt she'd be calling a ten seven kind of hand, but yeah, I, I would think for sure she has all the all the suited combinations of that, and that also brings in stuff like Jack Nine suited, Nine Seven suited, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Got it. Okay, so that gives us a kind of a sense of of her range. But yeah, this is definitely a good flop for a typical big blind defending range. Whenever you see three middle-ish high cards on the flop, it tends to be a better flop for the uh, out of position player in these situations. So uh, I would agree with that. And I'm assuming she's going to check to us here. She does. Yeah. So for all the reasons we just mentioned, I don't think I want to uh, see bet this flop. I think I'd rather just check it back and see if I pick up any more equity on the turn, even though it's a good flop for me, even though, uh, you know, I have plenty of equity, even if my C bet gets called, I just, I don't. I'm not trying to set up three barrels or anything um, against this player here. I think I'd rather check it back and control the pot, and uh, you know, see if we can make the nuts or something. Yeah, that's and that's exactly what I did. I, I had a lot of the same thoughts you did. I don't have feel like I have a lot of fold equity here, and some of the hands that she will be folding are hands that really aren't doing that well against me anyway. Like a hand like say King Four of Diamonds or something like that. If she has that. It's not like folding that out is a great bonus for me. Um, I also feel, you know, there, there aren't too many turn cards that are going to make her a strong hand that was wouldn't have called on the flop, which is another reason why checking back here is, is appealing. Of course, I did put this in Pio, and uh, it does think that we should bet and check about 50-50 on this hand. Okay, so in other words, we're indifferent to mm-hmm. whether we bet or not. Uh, and I assume you plug in like a normal C bet size of like 33% or so. Yeah, I usually usually give 33 and 66. I mean, I know some of the the high roller guys are going as low as as like one big blind, so that would be you know like 18% of the pot. But that's yeah. not really my arsenal. And I don't think that would really be applicable on this sort of flop anyway. That tends to be on flops where you have a much bigger range advantage than than this. Yeah, and also I don't think that those types of bets do what they're meant to do in the smaller buy-in tournaments. Right. Well, and also keep, keeping in mind that Pio, I didn't give it tell Pio that we were playing a tournament. So you know, you mentioned pot control. That's always something that's reasonable to think about as well in these situations where you don't necessarily want to play a huge pot at this point in the tournament. Right. Oh, that's a great distinction you're making there, there, Danny. Because if you are playing in a cash game. Uh, pot control is, is sometimes is a factor just because I don't want the pot to get too big for how comfortable I am with my hand strength. But pot control is a much more of a key uh, concept in tournament poker 
just because losing those pots that got out of control is so detrimental to your overall ability to make money by cashing. So just because quite simply you can't add on in a tournament. So yeah, that's all true. Yeah. yeah. And also, also the, uh, you know, the marginal value of a chip won is always less than the marginal value of a chip lost. Right. Right. So great. So we're on the same page here. You check behind. Yeah. So now the turn is the ace of clubs, bringing a second club, second flush draw. Keep in mind, I have the king of spades between the clubs, so I block each of those flush draws. Okay. So ace, jack, nine, seven. Well, jack, nine, seven, ace. And we yeah. have king, queen. Mm-hmm. And once again, our villain checks. Okay. Well, now I feel like I would like to bet. Um, blocking those flush draws is interesting, of course, but just mostly I think that I now have a range advantage. I think that a lot of our opponents' holdings will be something like a pair and a gut shot. Um, I don't know, maybe like a hand like 10-9, right? Something like that. And yeah, I think that hand is going to call this bet, but now once that ace comes off on 4th Street, now I'm thinking in terms of betting the turn and river regardless of what comes off. So this feels like a good spot for me to fire. And and in this case, I would usually bet close to the pot size because, well, number one, that is the bet that I would make if I had an ace, a, a fairly big bet, maybe like 75 or 80% of the pot, you know, for value and also protection. Um, but also because I know that I'm going to have the turn bet called so often followed by the river bet folded to so often that I get a little greedy and I want to bet more on the turn so that I win a bigger pot when she folds on the end. Right. Sort of, sort of like a value bluff. Yeah. Right. Right. So, uh, once again, we're on the same wavelength here. I did bet two thirds of the pot, which maybe is a little less than you want to, but it's in the neighborhood. It's not a, not a little bet. I mean, you pointed out this is a good card for obviously we have all the ace king, ace queen, ace ten in our range. She doesn't have much ace king or ace queen. I assume she would have three bet those. And uh, once again, she checked as well, so it's not as likely that she's got a real strong hand that you know she was slow playing or didn't hit you know didn't bet the flop. But you know, so she probably doesn't have some super nutty hand. Uh, so yeah, so we bet two thirds of the pot. Uh, once again, this is something that the Pio was on board with. It, it mixed more or less half and half. I didn't give it a really big size, and maybe that would be the uh, better uh, size to use. But I think two thirds is fine for a tournament. Cool. And so we did it, and Pio is in agreement. Right. <laughs> that feels good. <laughs> yeah, it does. So our villain comfortably calls. She didn't you know, snap call or anything like that, but she seemed very comfortable that, you know, this is a hand that I can definitely call with. And, uh, right now for me, that that's kind of, you know, her sweet spot is hands like 10, nine pair and a gut shot. Like, yeah, she, she's aware that that ACE could very well have improved us and given her the second best hand all of a sudden, which may have been good on the flop. Like when we do have ACE King, etc. But because she has so much equity versus all of our pair of aces type of hands, when she's got a pair and a gut shot, I think even calling this relatively healthy bet 
makes sense to her. So, I mean, if you had 10-9 and, and your opponent bet, you know, two-thirds of the pot, you're not going to fold. You have to right. call. Right. All true. Especially if he can have king-queen, that bluffer. <laughs> well, speaking of segues, you mentioned you mentioned ten nine prominently in your discussion. So the river is a red nine. So the, the, that pairs the uh, middle card from the flop. Uh, it does not bring any of the flushes in because the because the two flush draws were black. And now, surprisingly to us, our villain leads for eighty percent of the pot. Oh wow! Okay, so just to recap. Uh, we raised before the flop, and the villain in the hand, the big blind, is a uh, thinking Asian female who is on the tighter side, and the flop came jack nine seven, and we went check check on the turn. It was an ace, and it went check back call, and now here on the river, the nine pairs, and villain leads. For you said eighty percent, right? Yes. Okay. So this is a pretty polarizing type of bet, I think. I think our opponent will sometimes have any one of the many available missed draws, um, or she will have a hand that she was just really afraid to check to us, like. a full house or, or whatever, a nine. She could have like, you know, 10, nine. <laughs> Since that seems to be the hand I want to give her, like she right. has that now betting 80% on the end after you had bet pretty, pretty big on the turn with your pair of aces ostensibly. Yeah. I think betting this amount would make sense. I guess the real question for me becomes how capable of a big sizable bluff do we think this player is here on this river? And so right. only you can answer that. So yeah, you, you covered a lot of my thoughts there. Yes, she could have a nine, obviously. Um, my first thing, instinct was that for value, she's got to have a nine or better. She's not leading with like ace jack or any, any sort of um, hand that's less than three nines. So that doesn't leave her very many combinations. Obviously she has 10, nine and, and uh, nine eight, she might have check raised jack nine on the turn when she made two pair, when she flopped two pair. So I'm thinking that there aren't a lot of nines in her range. And this is, you know, one of those, the times I went for some something of a live read. I know you've mentioned this before as well at the table. And she didn't really feel that strong about her hand. So I'm thinking to myself, well, she's either got a nine or a bluff. Now I know that on the turn having the king of spades and the queen of clubs is good because it blocks a lot of the hands that she would have called with. But on the river, now that blocks a lot of the hands that she's going to bluff with. She doesn't have as many spade draws, as many club draws. She doesn't have as many king 10 or queen 10 or king queen even. So I'm thinking to myself, I know this is a, this is a fold. And I, but I can't help myself but just thinking about what her range is and why she's leading here. Now, one of the things that I've observed in general in Pio is it doesn't like to lead a lot when it's acting out of flow, so to speak. So she, since she checked called the turn, Pio's not going to usually lead very much. And I was right about that. It only leads less than 1% of the time, which might even be a rounding error. So it just doesn't do that. So no matter what she has, 
no matter what she has, you're telling me the solver doesn't like her play. Right. Right. That's correct, right. yes. Yeah. Okay, so, yeah, I mean, you made a lot of really good points, especially about the combinatorics and about whether or not we want her to have spades or clubs in her hand, right? Like, those right. are all really good points. But I want to go back and rewind for a second because when she called on the turn, you said she called comfortably. Right. And when she bet here on the river, you basically said she did so less comfortably. So can you describe for our listeners a little bit of what you're observing um, in terms of body language or general feel? What did you pick up on that made you feel like she was comfortable on 4th Street but not on the river? Um, more sort of like a timing tell than anything else. I mean, this was this was about two and a half months ago, and I only took, like I said, I didn't take great notes about all these hands. So I don't remember exactly what I was thinking at the time. But I do remember thinking, you know, one of the things that, I've often noticed is that people are very happy to call with a draw in a situation where they know they're not going to raise because, oh, I'm getting a good price, I'm calling with a draw, and they feel like there's it's like a, a no-brainer decision. Whereas when they're calling with, you know, if they're calling with, say, something like 7-6 and no draw, they wouldn't really be very happy about it because they know that they could be they could be drawing dead or in very bad shape most of the time. So... Her comfortable call on the turn um, sort of tilted me a little bit towards more draws and less value. And then I don't remember exactly what it was that I felt on the river as far as, as whether she felt strong or not. Yeah, and honestly, we don't want to base this decision just on that anyway, because this is a large bet in a bracelet event by mm -hmm. a, a player that we have written down as a relatively tight opponent so i mean we need to take this bet seriously yes we do unfortunately your hero did not take it as seriously as he needed to and after a while i put out the chips for the call yeah i, I, wanted, I wanted to fold but what did she have <laughs> oh i had that you would never guess in a million years i saw queen jack of with two red cards. So she had no, you know, just a, a pair of queens. She did have the uh, the gut shot to the 10 for the straight, which, of course, would, wait a minute, she didn't have a gut shot. I'm sorry. She just had the, she had, she had no, uh, just a pair, no draw on the turn. So my read in that sense was wrong. And more importantly, my read on the river as far as whether she'd only bet a nine for value was wrong, unless, unless she was turning her jack into a bluff, which... Maybe you can you can give me some information about what you think because this is sort of a, a play that's a little strange. I didn't expect to see this hand in her range, and having made the call, I expected to see either, either a nine or a bluff. And here here she turns over queen jack to beat me. Wow. Now she did she did say one thing interesting after because it took a while. She said you must have had pocket tens. So she I guess she thought I was uh, that she was value betting there, but it seems like a very strange play all in all to leave the turn one up on a card that could really make her a very strong hand doesn't improve her at all and I could easily have many hands that are way ahead of what she has well yeah you could um, what about raising the river if you don't think she's very strong that, that's that's a good point. I didn't really seriously consider it in that in game because just because I didn't think she would ever fall to nine if she had a value hand. And 
if she has a bluff, I feel like I'm going to be beating them. I don't think she's turning a pair of Jags into a bluff here. Do you beat all of her bluffs, though? I mean, could she have, like, pocket deuces or something ever? Yeah, I hate when I make a hero call and try to catch a bluff with the nut low. Or I mean, well, the the nut no pair is what you have, right? right so, right, yeah. so I hate when I do that, and then the player has some stupid little pair that they're not supposed to to ever have. So I wonder right. if it's is it better to uh, never I, raise? I don't I don't think this is a spot where I'm supposed to be raising very much, unless I have you know something super strong or some some really strong read that my hand is not good enough to to beat her value that she's going to fold, which, you know, from my original read, if it's either a nine or a bluff, and I don't think she's folding very many nines, I didn't think that it was necessary to bluff. And yeah, yeah, she could have some small pair that she played very strangely, but really what small pair is calling the turn there, like a pair of fours or fives, why would they call the turn there? Yeah, I think it is a very strange call on, on the turn even. I mean, the part about it seeming like she was so comfortable which Mm -hmm. maybe just proves how hard it is to really trust our live reads you know she could have been pretending to be comfortable and she fooled you into thinking she actually was comfortable but she didn't love the ace but she still wasn't ready to fold just because she knows that you have some bluffs in your range there and that you can represent that ace whether you have it or not if she's a thinking player then she needs to call at least some of the time She's too exploitable if she folds jacks every time there, right? Oh, sure. I wouldn't expect her to fold a jack on the turn. Right, but it's a pretty big bet by you, and for her to be so comfortable making the call is the part that I'm, you know, kind of focusing on here, is that not that she made the call, but is she just, she really gave you the impression that she was uh, not too pressed about it. Right. Yes. I think she. it's just one of those spots where I guess she just sort of knew she was supposed to call, so she did. Yeah. You know, like you said, we don't want to get too too uh, reliant on our live reads because they're often going to be wrong. I just, you know, and I did pick a very bad hand in terms of blockers to decide, all right, this is the time I'm going to try to make a hero call because I have a lot of the, the hands that... I have a lot of the cards that she might be using to bluff with. So yeah, and yeah. honestly, Danny, that was the part that made me want to fold um, when you were going through it. And by the way, guys, as always, I don't I don't get these hands ahead of time. Whenever I speak with a guest about a hand, I like to try to put myself in that player's shoes and not give myself the luxury of studying the hand for several hours before the <laughs> before the podcast recording, which is why I sometimes sound like an idiot when we go through hands like this because I don't get them ahead of time and this one was no exception. But yeah, as you were talking through it, the fact that we have a spade and a club and you know those cards in our hand, that's what really wanted, made me want to fold. That and the fact that she did seem comfortable calling on the turn. In my experience in lower buy-in tournaments, meaning anything under let's say 1500 uh, is when a player goes check call lead that lead is usually a big hand uh, yeah it's funny you should say that because I, I shortly after this hand I, I, I played I was listening to another podcast where they came to the conclusion that 
unexpected bets tend towards value. There don't tend to be a lot of bluffs when you when somebody's betting one they shouldn't be. Right, but it's hard to imagine that this woman even knew that she had value because there's an ace out there and you bet two-thirds of the pot on the turn. So her bet doesn't really make sense to me whether she thought it was for value or whether she thought she was trying to bluff you off of something. But yeah, it's it's an odd play for sure either way. Yeah, I think the more I think about it, I think she was trying to bluff me off a, off a, like an ace-queen kind of hand representing a nine, which is quite interesting. Yeah, I mean, that's not advisable. Um, <laughs> I mean, right. it, you know, nowadays players know they just have to... I mean, the solvers are teaching everybody to be a lot more stationy than they used to. That's been one of the biggest changes since, since the solvers kind of came onto the scene. For me, it's just people are way less bluffable than they used to be because the solvers are teaching everyone you need to have some hands that are near the top of your range as bluff catchers and you know yada yada so uh i think trying to bluff you off of ace queen in her shoes is uh not plus ev yeah i would i would agree with that that's why i was very surprised to see that hit. so yeah that's an interesting spot so what happens uh just for results for the rest of the tournament so um shortly thereafter you know maybe an hour or so later i got I got it all in with ace-queen suited against kings, and I, I flopped ace-ace-queen. And then maybe an hour later, I got it all in with jacks against kings. Both times I had the other the phone covered, and I flopped jack-jack and a little guard there. So I was uh, good at knocking off the kings. I ended up uh, min-cashing, not min-cashing, actually, making through the money. And uh, a funny thing happened at the end. I had a flip with ace-king against sevens. I had about... Uh, five starting stacks at this point, and I lost it. And I was down to three quarters of a big blind. And I had just finished reading our friend Dara Carney's book about um, ICM, and I looked, turned around and looked at the scoreboard and saw that there's only like three or four more players needed to cash. To sorry, for me to to ladder. So I just folded my next few hands, waited till that happened, and I picked up an extra two hundred dollars that way. So that book paid for itself several times over for just for that one little play. Yeah, for sure, because it's it's not exactly what we would instinctively do with such a strong hand. You say, oh, now's my chance to try to get some chips. But right. sometimes it is more important to look at that ICM problem and say, wow, if there's only five players until the next pay jump, what's right. the difference if I have three big blinds or six, right? Yeah. <laughs> or, I had like three quarters of a big blind. Oh, you had three quarters, right? Yeah, so three, yeah, going from three quarters to two even is uh, it's worthless. It's, yeah, yeah, it's basically. basically worthless at the end of the day. So folding is correct there, even though uh, even as few as ten years ago, hardly anyone would have been folding in that situation. Right, uh, and that's the kind of stuff that I need to learn. You guys all know that I'm not an ICM guy as much as I as I need to be. But yeah, I hope that in that spot I would have been able to make that extra 200 myself. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, well, that's good. And thanks for sharing your uh, thoughts and your experience. And uh, especially thank you for um, all the solver work that you do on the hands that we discuss here on the podcast because very often it, it, it gives me insight that I otherwise wouldn't have. Uh, why don't you let people know uh, where they can follow you on Twitter and wherever else? So uh, 
On Twitter, I'm at 3 for 3, the number 3. Let me just make sure that this is correct. Let me just make sure that my – sorry, give me one second here. That's okay. Yeah, it's important to get it right. I know it's 3 for 3 is my thing because that's where I – I was a big fan of Allen Iverson's. So, yeah, at the letters 3, T-H-R-E-E, the number 4, and then T-H-R-E-E again, 3 for 3. Okay, so spell or out – Spell out the words, spell out the word three, and then use the number for the word four. <laughs> okay, <laughs> three for three on Twitter. All right, Danny, it's been a lot of fun talking with you. I'd love to have you back on sometime. Thanks so much for being my guest. Thanks so much for having me, Clayton. Have a good day. Yeah, what a great conversation. Appreciate you taking the time to chat with us today. So for Danny Sprung and for everyone here at Tournament Poker Edge, I'm Clayton Fletcher. Thank you so much for listening. I wanna hold them like they do in Texas plays Fold them, let them hit me, raise it, baby, stay with me Lock in intuition, play the cards with babes to start And after she's been hooked, I'll play the one that's on her heart Love it, it's not rough, it isn't fun, fun.